Welcome to Paranormal Almanac. With your host, Kurt Sandvig. started too soon. I am your host, Kurt Savick, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's talk about mysteries. Unsolved mysteries. Well, some of them. You'll see. Don't worry. Hold on. First, we have to do the shout-outs. That's right. We have shout-outs going out to D. Henry, Tony, Flory, Jason, Vicky Crow, Clay, Tim, Buzz, Tom, Lobito Works, Glacier, Maine, Isabel, Jen, Jen, Stacy, Tam, Tamara, 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 I love her. Amber, Tracy, Matthew, Sandy, Kelly, Joe, Menace the Beast, Kick-Ass Magic Robot Webcomics, Sandy, Paige Brooks, Kyle, Sean, Andrew, Scott, Andrea, Devin, Melody, Ricardo, Vicky, Christopher, Vanessa, Marisol, Liam, Roger, Michael, Terminal, Animal, Alicia, Becca, Jake, and the Beasties, Elizabeth, Boyd, Tech, Sherry, Art Muffin, Trudy, Tim, Kenneth, Paul, Ricardo, Ian, Armor Times 10, Alexandra, George, Seth, Zozo the Demon! Hayden, Cindy, Kim, Ashley, what's that? Carrie, Robin, Will, Lorna, Phil, Mangano, Russell, April, Isabel, Audra, Dorian, Cindy, Bob, Stacy, Paula, Jerry, Leo, Scostin, Lindsay, Hahn, Megan, Matt, Jeff, T, Harley, Suzanne, Joe, Lawrence, the Lawrence Strong, hey, howdy, hi, Veronica, Autumn, J. Mark, Manning, Carolyn, Martin, Jade, Nanashi, Chuck, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Dan, Laura Pitts, and GamerFan, with two special shout outs to Joe Teague and Stitch. Alrighty, uh, next up is the Hand of Fate update. In case I don't do it, insert Hand of Fate update music here. I'll probably forget and I'll just leave it like that. But you, you know, you can play the music of your own, create your own Hand of Fate music in your head. That's what I want you to do at this point. Uh, do I have any Hand of Fate updates? I showed it to a couple of friends of mine. Finally, the Sean Bishop got to see it Thursday night. Real quick, he got to look at it. We opened up the uh, the wooden box, and he was like, yeah, that is, that's cinnamon. So it was definitely a layer of cinnamon in in with the with the dirt at some point somewhere. Uh, whatever the whiskey smell was, that has long since evaporated, I guess. Uh, let's see. Nothing else really exciting. I I played with the, uh, the REM pod around the hand of fate. Nothing happened. I was hoping that it would go off, or I don't know if I was hoping. I was seeing if it would go off, but no, didn't. Didn't really do anything. I also showed it to a bunch of, uh, let's just call them skeptic friends of mine. That the, the kind of friends that most of my friends that I have where they go, oh, oh, that's right. I forgot. You do a podcast? I'm like, yeah, gee, thanks for listening. But um, And they're very skeptical about anything paranormal. So they looked at it and were like, okay, well, what is it? I'm like, well, I don't know. Well, where did it come from? I'm like, I just told you the story. I don't know. Well, that's weird. Yeah, no shit, that's fucking weird. And then one of the guys was like, I don't know. That's just, who, I mean, who, who cares? I'm like, all right, you get a fucking heavy-ass package in the mail about some kind of cursed hand of fate object, and then go, nah, who cares? It's just weird. Uh, he wasn't impressed with the photo either. He looked at the photo and was just like, well, I can see your face. I'm like, look. I'm not saying her head is cut off. I'm saying you can't really see her face in that photograph. I probably haven't really shared that photo, the other items that were in the uh, the wooden crate with the Hand of Fate. I probably haven't shared them as much as I should. Maybe I'll throw them up on Twitter. If I remember, I'll throw them up on Twitter. And if I don't remember, you know, call me out on it. Be like, Kurt, you said you're going to throw them up on Twitter, so I can remember to throw them up on Twitter. All righty, let's get over to, oh, uh, sorry, I almost forgot. Um, you can head over to tpublic.com slash stores, with an S, slash paranormal dash almanac. Can they make it any harder for you guys to find it? That is the only way to find all of the Paranormal Almanac merch, including this week's limited edition 200th episode uh, shirt that uh, was actually designed by Fan Andrew. And I was saving it for one of the last ones that was going to be like the 200th, 200th shirt, basically, when I was at the 200th mark. But he was so angrily, desperately wanting it. That I was like, fine, I'll release it. Here you go, which is fine. But uh, 
So yeah, there's that. All right, let's get right on into paranormal news because I got a lot to get to on this episode, but there's a shit ton of paranormal news, including fucking awesome cool bumper music that I have to play now. I was going to wait till the 200th, but I fuck it. I'm playing it now. It's my show. I'm going to play it now. Have you ever seen Bigfoot riding on the back of Nessie while being sucked up into the sky by a UFO, all to the soundtrack of a choir of ghost cats being led by a black-eyed child? Is this story true? Well, there's only one place you're going to find out. Get all my news from Paranormal News. Listen carefully for the clues. The stories are strange and bizarre. It makes you wonder just who we are. That's so freaking awesome. It is by Buzz Lee. I cannot thank him enough. Buzz, you said take it away. I'm trying to take it away. I'm literally doing what you just asked me to do. No, it's by the awesome Buzz Lee. I can't thank him enough. If you guys have talent and, and you know, style like Buzz to make bumper music, please send it in because I love a good bumper music. And that was exactly a good bumper music. So once again, thank you to Buzz Lee in case you couldn't hear me because I forgot to actually turn down that music a little bit. But in case you couldn't hear it, that was from Buzz Lee. Freaking awesome. Patron Buzz Lee killing it on that one. I fucking love it. All right. This first one in paranormal news is one that I've been like eager to get to. I threw it first on there because I want to figure out, I wanted to watch it. I haven't watched it yet. It was a tweet by Paranormality Magazine that says, here's the video of the pale creature caught on a security camera near Moorhead, Kentucky. And it's 33 seconds long, and I didn't watch it. I posted it on the Facebook page. I know some of you guys watched it. I can't find that post because I wanted to uh, read your guys' comments, but I couldn't find it, so sorry. Um, But it's okay because I'm going to watch it right now. I'm going to make it full screen. I really want to see the whole fucking thing. Uh. All right, so it's this white creature kind of slouched over, walking towards the right of the screen. There's a car or a truck or something in the on the screen. But it's a security camera footage. Creature slumped over, walking weird. You see his face clearly. No, you couldn't see his face clearly. What are you talking about? You can see his face clearly. Hold on, I gotta rewind. You see his face clearly. You see his face clearly. No, you can't. No, you are a liar, ma'am. Ma'am, you are wrong. Um, where? You see his face clearly. No. No, you can't. But I don't know what to think of this thing. Like, it's it's low res enough that if it was just some dude, you know, slouching over and walking weird, it's creepy. I'll give him that. I don't think it's. I don't think it's CGI. I think it's just some dude walking all kinds of creepy weird trying to scare people on a security camera. But you know what? Job well accomplished. Uh, Let's see. Are there any... It's actor Doug Jones in quarantine. (laughs) All right. That's a good good one. Um, I don't know what to think of that. That I mean, it's definitely neat. I was trying to read some more of these, but it's a video recording of a monitor playing the recording, not the actual video itself. No, exactly. Um, I don't think it was a guy in a suit. Ah, I could very well be a guy in a suit. I think it's a manipulation of photography, but God told us there are creatures that we do not see. Well, then, how do we know it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a guy in a bodysuit, but I have no idea. You like this? Looks like a person in a body. All right. Yeah, it's a bunch of people trying to guess what it is. No one knows what it is. I don't know what it is. Let's move on to the next one. I got more shit to get to. This next one's very quick. Conspiracy theorists think that the Large Hadron Collider transferred us into a parallel universe yesterday. Okay. Well, you guys all thought it happened in 2016 where they dumped us into this darkest timeline where I can't even get stove for stove top stuffing anymore. So, you know what? Maybe it did send us back. And I'm fine with that. Take me back to the good timeline because I'm sick of this one. People are dying. Anarchy, Berenstain, Bear. Just take me back to the original one, please. I don't like it. 
Let's see. Uh, the Large Hadron Collider is now up and running and breaking records for the blah, 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 blah. But conspiracy theorists out there have concerns that it opens a gateway to hell or a parallel dimension from which there is no return. Yeah. You know what? It did. Welcome to reality now. Up next in paranormal news, Santa Fe, Santa Fe County hunters describe close encounter at Pot Mountain. I'm going to pause right here and say, if you're seeing stuff on something called Pot Mountain, you're smoking the pot. Uh, Josh Brinkley and Daniel Lucero went hunting for elk over the Labor Day weekend in a rugged terrain of North Taos. They, enter, they encountered something so strange they don't know what to call it. Still dressed in camouflage gear after several days in the wilderness near Cerro de la Oya. No, I said that wrong. Also known as Pot Mountain, the Santa Fe County bow hunters described a close encounter with what they said appeared to be otherworldly beings in a giant tent-like white structure that vanished in seconds. We're a couple of guys that don't believe in much. He says he's a family guy who works construction and on movie sets. He goes, but we believe now... He's been going to Pot Mountain area to hunt for 15 years, says he's never seen anything weird until last week. Lucero, who's 26, the other guy was 41, said it was first time hunting in the area. Bow hunting season opened on Bobbly Bob, don't care. Uh, let's see. It's about 9.30 a.m. I take off walking, creeping around through the woods, looking for elk. He reached the top of the mountain where there's a caldera, a wide bowl left behind by a collapsed volcano, in case you don't know what a caldera is. As he walked to the edge, he said he saw two figures a short distance away. At first, he thought they were fellow hunters, but they were too tall, their heads too big. They were standing side by side, staring right at me. He walked towards, the, he walked towards them across the brushy field, a distance he estimated to be about 35 yards. As a bow hunter, he said he's adept at measuring distances because it's, it's critical to hitting a target. All right, I can get behind that. That's cool. I figured I'd I would walk over and talk to them. As he walked around a bush in his path, however, the figures disappeared. They were gone, just gone. He thought about what he had seen, two, two tall figures concealed below the waist by brush. The shape that would be like their heads looked like they had huge hoods on. It looked like two ribbons coming off either side to a point at the top and the bottom. The right side was black, left side was white and a little shiny. Torsos were kind of black. I couldn't see many details. It definitely looked like clothes, and the middle of the oval was just gray. Later, he would draw what he could remember the figures in a leather-bound sketchbook he carries with them. It would draw... What he saw that same day. All right, where's the drawing? I don't care about this. Where's the drawing? Nope, it's not in here. Awesome. Um, he said, I couldn't take any more. I had to tell the other guy what he saw. And they said they couldn't figure out why there was no elk. There was no wildlife at all. After about 10 minutes of driving away, they saw a strange structure about a quarter mile away that appeared to be a movie base camp or a film set for an alien spaceship scene. It's this big tent structure, like a circus tent, 50 to 60 feet tall. Coming off the left was this long building, almost like you would build for archery lane for target practice. These guys were really in archery. It was a third the height, but really long, maybe a couple hundred feet. They drove down the hill, just lost sight of the structure for five seconds. When we topped the hill, it was gone, just gone. There was no dust. There was nothing. They drove around the area until dark, searching for the structure. They said, I just know it was real. It was huge and white and then gone. When they reached a place with cell phone service, they called a few friends, told them what they saw. They thought about calling the Air Force. Uh, they called some guy from National UFO Reporting Center in Washington State. It was a dramatic story. If it was true, it is profoundly unsettling. Huh. All right, yeah, that's cool. Go up to Pot Mountain if you want to see an alien. Alrighty, up next in paranormal news. If it would pop up, give it a second. Come on, Kurt. Come on. The hell? Let's try that again. Come on, baby. I want to tell the story. Yeah, here we go. Anomaly Hunter spots craft flying over Antarctica on Google Earth. All righty, let's see. I didn't watch it yet. What? This is from 2019. I'm not telling this story. Screw you. You made me wait all that time for a story from 2019. That's not paranormal news. That's retro paranormal news, and I probably already talked about it. So since I got a lot to get to, I'm skipping to the next one. As NASA prepares UFO study, are we seeing a new space race for aliens? Aliens, extraterrestrials, or little green men? Let's see. Don't care about any of this. Doesn't stop the government from holding its first congressional hearing on UFOs. Let's get down to the big stuff. In June, NASA announced it was to set up its own independent report on UFOs, which, again, is still just freaking amazing. 
Daniel Evans, Assistant Deputy Associate Administrator for Research at NASA's Science Mission Directorate, who is responsible for orchestrating the study, has said that the report is expected to reach completion in the spring of 2023. So we got a little time to go. That same month, Dmitry Rogozin, head of Russia's space agency Roscosmos, Roscosmos, sure, why not, suggested that his country is also going to have some form of official recognition for the reports. Huh. All they did say, though, hold on, though, this Rogozin guy loves to make a bunch of scientific or sensational statements that have no bearing at all on reality, so probably not true. But it would be neat if Russia did the same thing as America's doing, and other countries, not just them, all the countries, start taking these things a bit more seriously. Uh, the rest of it's all stuff you guys already know, so let's, make, uh, let's go on to the next one. Up next in paranormal news, House votes to make reporting UFO sightings even easier. Now, I've actually talked about this one, but the story just came out on July 14th that the House of Representatives on Wednesday voted for an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, making it even easier to report unidentified flying objects. The amendment creates a secure reporting system for UFOs and would, quote, also prevent unauthorized public reporting or compromise of properly classified military and intelligence systems, programs, and related activities. That's something you should note, because basically what they're saying is anything they determine that could compromise classified military, intelligence systems, programs, related activities will not be released to the public. Not surprisingly. But they said they were going to release everything to the public, remember? Yeah, not, not going to happen. Alrighty, up next in paranormal news, a UFO was filmed in Alberta, and people have questions. And it says with video, so I better have a freaking video because I've been wanting... Oh, it does have... All right, good. A video posted to Reddit reportedly shows a UFO flying over rural western Alberta and has some people wondering exactly what was caught on tape. Filmed June 22nd, 2022 on my brother-in-law's work site in Alberta. The video moves off the subject for a few seconds as he's actually watching with his own eyes, keen to hear people's thoughts. It was shot somewhere near the Brazos Dam, which is approximately 264 kilometers southwest of Edmonton, Canada. All righty, let's get to this freaking video already in progress. Well, I got to start that over. All right, I see lights. I see trees. I see lights over a hill. They look like three lights. Possibly. Yeah, three lights in a triangle. Oh, they are moving. They're not staying like... All right, yeah, there are three lights kind of like dancing with each other. Very interesting. One person says, It looks avian. The overcast skies and direction of the light on the foreground trees make it look like they're passing through areas of open sunlight. I don't know about that. They have to be fucking big birds. They're far away. I don't mean they have to be fucking big bird. I mean, they'd have to be huge birds that are very far away. Nah, I don't agree with that. They're birds. They're, they look way too far away. I mean, if they are, there'd be ginormous birds, but it doesn't really line up with, like, bird flight or moving around in patterns. No, those are lights. I don't care. That guy's wrong. That guy's just wrong. Those are lights, and they are dancing with each other. Wow, that's neat. That's This is a neat one. I'll have to make sure I post this one. Uh, it doesn't. The rest of it doesn't matter. It's it's weird. It's UFO-y. I like it. I'll make sure I post it. Alrighty, up next in Paranormal News. I still got like five left to get through. I don't have to. I mean, it's my fucking podcast. I can start at any time. But I want to get to them. Up next in Paranormal News, the day workers saw a glowing UFO hovering over Birmingham's Rotunda Skyscraper. It seems like an ordinary day in Birmingham, with the daily hustle and bustle of England's second city going on as normal in the heart of the city center, near where the Bullring Shopping Center stands today. A young man was hard at work at the 24-story, 25-story Rotunda building. I don't care about that. He was 18 at the time. He's now, what? He was 18 at the time, but now is an elderly citizen. But this is a brand new story. Why'd you wait so long? The red object was airborne and glowing. It came from the direction of New Street, where one of the city's two train stations is based. Recalling the man's testimony, Dave Hodrian, chairman of UFO uh, Birmingham UFO Group, said... He worked at the base of the rotunda. Him and three other people were asked to take up this chiller up to the street level to get it to load onto a lorry. 
They were out there on Queensway, where the new Bullring Shopping Center is now. Essentially, they looked over in the direction of the New Street Station and saw a glowing red sphere that came from New Street and reached the top of the rotunda. Then it started to move down the other side of the rotunda, almost like it was looking into the windows in a vertical line. The case is a historic one. Uh, It says then it moved to the... Down the side of the rotunda, but I'm like, no, he already said that. He gets about three quarters of the way down, stops for several seconds, then reverses and goes back up to the top of the rotunda. Then it shoots off in the sky at an absolutely dramatic speed. Unfortunately, there was no photographic evidence of this incident. Um, basically, this guy's doing a bunch of uh, stories about like historic UFO encounters, and this is one of the ones they did from seventy something years ago. Interesting. I like it. I like it so much, I'm going to move on to the next one. Up next in paranormal news, UFO false flag, Pentagon UFO videos and alien invasions warnings are just a cover-up for something even more sinister, aerospace engineer claims. Mike Barra, who says he worked on many classified military projects, says that he's analyzed all these videos, the gimbal, the tic-tac, the go-fast, all the ones you guys already know about, and said there's nothing exceptional about any of them. Well, that's some bullshit. Um, He said the Navy put out these videos about four or five years ago now about these objects. There's one called Gimbal, Go Fast, one called TikTok. I'm an aerospace engineer, and I spent 25 years working in the industry, and I know my aircraft. I also know the capabilities of the instrument. I'm a big aviation buff, and I know everything that's in the sky. I was on many, many different programs. Get to your point. So when I'm looking at the videos, I'm looking at a couple of things. First of all... I can see it's performing in conventional manner. No, it's not. There's nothing exceptional about any of these. That's some bullshit. Um, n- all right, I'm not even going to continue on. This guy doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. He's saying that uh, it's all the pilots using the instruments wrong without any evidence for any of that. So when he stops with the evidence, I stop with the news story. A black triangle UFO left U.S. fighter jet hopelessly outclassed and moved like no known craft as it buzzed a warship. That's right. It's happening again. Uh, Let's see. Declassified files show a destroyer once encountered a mysterious object multiple times in November of 1964 while sailing around 200 miles from Puerto Rico in the Atlantic Ocean. It was tracked on the ship's radar and was reported to have been made extraordinary maneuvers at incredible speeds while also being able to suddenly move slow at low altitudes. The object was also tracked by a radar station as it reported to have hit speeds of up to 4,000 miles per hour. That is cool. Shit's been going on forever, folks. We're going to figure it out someday, said no one. Alrighty, up next in paranormal news. This one's real quick, and I just wanted to add it because I love these kinds of stories. There's a cosmic heartbeat radio signal that everybody was like, holy crap, what is it? Well, astronomers figured it out. It's described like a heartbeat from a neutron star flash. So nothing paranormal. Um, It's really cool when they can figure out what a fast radio burst is actually coming from. This one was first reported in 2007, finally has an explanation. It's from a neutron star. Nothing paranormal, but freaking awesome nonetheless. Alrighty, up next in paranormal news, a freaking weird one. I got sent by so many people, it was hilarious. So I just grabbed the first one that I could find on, on the news uh, Google aggregate. But it's uh, <laughs> it's called the Bigfoot murder. It said, that's right, a fisherman killed his friend over fears he was summoning a Bigfoot. A man who claimed Bigfoot forced him to murder his friend during an ill-fated fishing excursion was apparently convinced that the Bigfoot had been lurking in the area for several years. Larry Sanders, no relation to Larry Sanders, uh, allegedly murdered his childhood best friend Jimmy Knighton uh, in Oklahoma on Saturday as the two men were fishing with their hands fishing with their hands along the South Canadian River. Let's see. Let's let's go down to the good stuff. A statement issued by the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations on Monday said that the two men got into a confrontation resulting in Sanders allegedly strangling Knighton to death and drowning him in the river. In an interview with the newspaper, Knighton's ex-wife Stacey Kelly said that the confrontation was sparked after Knighton started hitting a tin bell 
to lure fish to the surface of the water. But Sanders, described as an avid believer in Bigfoot, apparently grew paranoid that Knighton had other more sinister and bizarre intentions. He's been claiming that there's Bigfoot in the area for several years. Well, there probably are, but what? What? Come on, man. What does that have to do with any? His belief was that Jimmy was summoning Bigfoot and was planning on leaving him in the woods, I guess, to be eaten by Bigfoot. Nah, it's, it's a sad story. Someone died for no reason because some guy had a mental health breakdown. But what a bizarre freaking story. Don't fucking shoot Bigfoot and don't kill your friend because of Bigfoot. How about that? Finally, in paranormal news, is there really a Honey Island swamp monster? That's right, Louisiana's Bigfoot. We might have an answer. Guess what? We don't have an answer. Wait, hold on. I got to pause my ad blocker. I thought I had it paused, but I did not. Uh, Bobby Brittell grew up in New Orleans, nearly 40 miles away from the moss-tangled bayous of eastern St. Tammany, 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 Parish. I did turn off my ad blocker, you dickholes. Um... And he said he's always heard about the Honey Island Swamp Monster, a legendary 500-foot pound, 500-pound Bigfoot that some claim hides amongst the cypress trees in the murky waters. I had relatives that lived in Covington. Oh, you motherfucker. He had relatives that lived in Covington. They saw Bigfoot. But I can't read you the damn story because it keeps popping up even though my ad blocker's turned off. So, as you know, when it gets to that point, I say fuck it and close up the paranormal news Bag, segment, whatever you want to call it. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. And that's right, I'm back. And as you probably know, I love a good mystery. Oh, people might be asking, Kurt, why is it taking you so long to get this episode out? Well, that's not a mystery. Um, I had a very busy last week through because of the day job and because of other things, and then there's an arsonist in my neighborhood and I had to put out a fire with a bunch of other neighbors and it was terrifying and, and way more important than recording an episode. So I'm finally getting to it. I'm sorry that it took so long to get this episode out to you. But with that said, everybody knows I love a good mystery, blah, blah, blah. Yep, I do. It's true. I really do. I, I'll watch Curse of Oak Island until, I don't know, till it, they dig up the entire island and there's no more island. I mean, I just love a good mystery. What the hell's down there? Why do they keep finding random weird things? Is there anything down there? I love that kind of stuff. But there's also mysteries like, where's Amelia Earhart? All right, probably Nick and Maruru. Okay, answered that one. What happened to Roanoke? Well, they probably integrated with a bunch of helpful Native American tribes just off the coast, so check that off the list. Um, you know... Even with these probably solved mysteries, though, there are tons of people that straight up disappear, never to be seen again, and never make the news like a Roanoke or Amelia Earhart or anything like that. The lesser known people that have disappeared. And yes, I know I've talked about these before. People that disappeared in state parks did a big story about that. Other unexplained disappearances, sure. You know, they think they can't... They, they're saying they probably have figured out where Jimmy Hoffa is. Well, let's hope so, because that would be interesting. But I don't understand why missing people fascinate so many people like me. People who listen to podcasts love to hear about missing people. But here you go, armchair detectives. Solve these mysteries tonight. I actually debunked a couple. But still, the ones I didn't debunk, solve these. All right, for the first one, let's go all the way back to the 19th century. To the 9th of November in 1878. On this night, at about 9 o'clock at night, in Quincy, Illinois, Charles Ashmore, who wasn't a kid but a 16-year-old. Look, you got to remember that 16-year-olds were basically adults in 1878. And I guarantee they're way more rugged than any modern-day 16-year-olds. Yeah, I said it. Come at me. Come at me when you can churn butter, hunt and slaughter your breakfast, and poop outside by sunrise without TikToking about it. Then I'll, I'll say, okay, you're tough too. But until then, now nah, this kid was tougher. But 16-year-old Charles Ashmore, if he existed, not 100%, but the story's also from 1878. There's only so much research I can do. Let's just assume he's real. He was sent out to fetch water from a well. So off he goes, and then nothing. When he didn't return, his father went to look for him, so off he goes with the lantern. 
Now, he says he follows Charles's tracks in the snow easily until they just end abruptly. They all go out and look for him, search for him, nothing. A few days later, his mother said that she heard his voice. She would call to this um, incredibly clear voice that she was hearing. It was just like, that was him. I know Charles's voice. But he couldn't be seen, and she couldn't figure out where his voice was coming from. There are some that said, like, his voice was coming from space. No, it wasn't. Because it wasn't coming from the sky. She said she couldn't figure out where it was coming from. She asked where he was, but she never received any answer. Now, this went on for months with family and neighbors also hearing his voice. Now, over time, they said that his calls grew fainter and seemed to be from greater distances away. So it wasn't like he was, you know, yelling from the well or anything. But Charles was never seen again. Now, I could find evidence that his family existed. It does seem to be a true story, but there are some people that say, no, it's been confused with a story that I'm going to tell you a little bit later. And I don't think that's true. All right, this next one, though, it's very similar, kind of a disappearance as well. This one was actually published in June of 1953 in Fate magazine. From everything I could find, this one is probably a fictional story that was retold and retold and retold, became an urban legend for a bunch of different states over the years. This is almost like, you know, like the ghost kids that push your car up over the train tracks and then your handprints are in the dust in the back of your car. It's like that kind of a thing. All right, the story was called How My Father Disappeared. It was said it was written via an interview that writer Stuart Palmer had with daughter Sarah Lang. Not his daughter, but the daughter of the person that disappeared, this guy David Lang. So Sarah Lang, interview happened in 1931. I don't think it's real, but we'll keep going. Now, Sarah talked about how her father, David Lang, disappeared without a trace. September 23rd, 1880, Sumner County, Tennessee. David Lang walked through a field not far from his house. His wife watched him from the porch while their kids, George and Sarah, were playing in the courtyard. Now, just at this time, a lawyer and a judge or lawyer, he was also a judge as well, I don't know, August Peck and his brother-in-law were driving up to the house for some business. They said... Suddenly, Mrs. Lang screamed. Men stopped the car. They were like, what the fuck is she freaking out about? She was looking off in the distance at her husband walking away. You know, she doesn't like to, what is it? Uh, I don't want you to leave, but I like to watch you walk away. However they word that thing. That's one of those kind of things. She was like, she was liking what she was seeing when he was walking away. But then boom, boom, he's gone. So they ran up to her. They, she said, David just disappeared right before her eyes. She pointed the men to where he had vanished. So they run over there. They start the search. Nothing. A search party was formed. Again, months went by and nothing. But unlike the last one, this one actually had, quote unquote, physical evidence. Because on the spot where he disappeared, where she saw him disappear, they said an uneven circle with a diameter of 15 feet was visible. Inside the circle, they said nothing would grow. It seemed that even insects didn't want to crawl in there. Now, Sarah said, one time, years later, while playing, the children went inside the circle, and they said they heard the voice of their dad, but faintly, and this one seemed ethereal. David Lang was never seen again. Dun, dun, dun. All right, moving on to Christmas Eve. Right, the reason I say that that one's not real, just so you guys kind of know, this fate magazine seemed to be all bullshit. It was like uh, like the weekly world news of its time. It was just there to tell ghost stories and urban legends and spook you out, saying, like, these are all true stories, when very little have been determined to be true. All righty, so just by, you know, sheer evidence or, or amount of crap that they posted, I'm going to say that one probably wasn't true, but that one doesn't have a billion armchair detectives online saying, no way that's true. Or that you know, here's the here's the the guy that came up with the story and he admitted it's fake. Oh, nothing, nothing that I can definitively say shows that that story is not true. That's why I put it on there as you know, yeah, sure, grain of salt. It fake, fake magazines mentioned, but I don't know. Now, all right, let's move on to Christmas Eve, 1889. Now, this one I think isn't real, and I'll tell you why in a second. All right, uh, we go to 12-year-old Oliver Larch of South Bend, Indiana. Now, he went to a well to fetch water. All right, well, how about this? Enough 
with sending people to wells. Just get indoor plumbing, idiots. All right, after a short while, his parents heard him crying out, help, help, they've got me, help. That's not even the weird part. Well, for them. What was weird was the cries seemed to be coming from overhead. No, I want a dun-dun-da. Nah, it's not spooky enough. Nah, it's chirping. That's just a rim shot. I, I gotta get a dun-dun-da kind of a noise. So his cries were coming from overhead. Let's see. Uh, his uh, father and others in the house went to look for the boy carrying a lamp halfway to the well, about 75 feet from the house. The boy's footprints in the snow end abruptly. There are no other tracks. The boy had vanished forever. By an astonishing coincidence, another 11-year-old named Oliver, son of Mr. Thomas in Wales, vanished going to a well on Christmas Eve in 1909. Footsteps stopped in the snow. He's heard to cry out in terror, disappearing, blah, blah, blah. All right, here's why I think it's not true. There are also, also other versions of the story where he is Oliver Lurch, not Larch, or even Oliver Thomas. He's 20. He's 22. Not 12. He's 11. He's 10. He's in a different state, different different country. It took place on Christmas Eve, 1889. Christmas Day, 1889. Christmas Day, 1890. Christmas Day, 1909. That's what I found. But then I found this. Someone who actually did the work for me, which I always appreciate because I don't want to do any kind of work. Ever. Um, Francis K. Suzuki had written a couple of articles in the 1960s trying to verify this story. He said that neither he nor the local library could find any evidence that this thing ever happened. He wrote, not a single paragraph about the disappearance of Oliver Lurch at that time was printed anywhere. An independent investigating team from the South Bend Public Library searched the old files of the South Bend News Time as well as the Tribune, and they couldn't find anything. Then, police reports dating back to 1890s were destroyed, so they couldn't really have any police reports. But Sarah Lockerbie, also of the South Bend Tribune, in the 1960s wrote an article for her Sunday newspaper, or magazine, sorry, that said uh, that talked about the uh, disappearance, and they said, uh, let's see where it was. I had to get interrupted. I was a neighbor that came by. Um, Sarah Lockerbie... 1960s, wrote an article for Sunday Magazine about the disappearance. Uh, she spoke to members of the Lurch family who still lived in South Bend, so they were a real family. But uh, Sherman Lurch, who lived in the area his whole life, said anytime anybody would ask about this, he would say, it's not true. It's a made-up story. Somehow they got their family name, their surname, but it isn't a true story. It's all fake. Now, another problem that these people did all this research that I didn't have to for, which I love, was the weather conditions. No matter what date you choose, December 1889, December 1890, 1909, whatever, it revealed that the weather was warm with highs in the 50s and 60s. So there is no possible way there was freshly fallen snow for his tracks and footprints and blah, 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 blah. Even with this, and it didn't take me long to find these per this person's stuff. I, I did my little research and I was like, oh yeah, this seems like it's bullshit. And then I found this guy's research and I was like, oh, it's really bullshit, this is amazing. Even with that, there are so many paranormal websites and podcasts that devote the entire episode, which I don't even know how you can. This, that's the whole story. I told you the entire story. They'll devote the whole episode to this story. I, it's bizarre to me that you can make an entire episode out of what is essentially like a paragraph of a story. They say it's true. It's been published so many times, and I bet money some douche nozzle is telling this story on TikTok and getting a million hits right now. It'll be forwarded to me in a month by a friend of mine saying, you should do an episode on this. Because I get those I get those kind of messages daily from my friends. Have you ever done an episode on this? I'm like, yeah, I did that. Like six years, not six years ago, like three years ago, and it's not true. Well, this guy says it's true, and he's getting a million hits. Look, I'm not saying it's 100% not true. Most of these urban legend type stories have a grain of truth. To me, the grain of truth to this one is there was a Lurch family in South Bend, Indiana. It's been changed to Larch because probably in the 60s, Lurch became known for, um, you know, Adam family. But, you know, 
There's probably a grain of truth to it, but just spending a couple of hours researching it on my own, going down a bunch of rabbit holes, I said, enough is enough. It's not real in my mind. Let's move on, basically, is what I said. So with that, um, let's move on to another one. But this one isn't just one person disappearing, but a bunch of people disappearing. Now, this next one is well-written. It's written about everywhere. There's a, it's got a lot of people talking about it. It's weird as hell. I doubt it'll ever get a definitive answer. But it's also from like 1900 years ago. So let's go all the way back to the year 119 when the 9th Roman Legion, known as Hispania, was set to subdue one of the several revolts in Brigantine, Brigantia which, you know, as you should all clearly know, was a confederacy of tribes in northern Britain at that time. In 119, it was called Brigantia. Now, the Ninth Legion, just so you know, it wasn't 10 men, not even 100 men. No, Hispania was made up of around 6,000 men who all disappeared without a trace. Some think they were slowly wiped out, but records don't reflect that. Others think they survived to form other battalions, but again, no records, no proof of this happening. Others have no clue. Basically, everybody has no clue. I don't know why I said, I don't know, I wrote, others have no clue in my little outline notes. No, no one has a clue. There is still no definitive answer to what happened to the Ninth Roman Legion. Sticking with the uh, military for a minute. Let's go to 1701. The Spanish War of Succession was happening. An army of 4,000 fully equipped troops reportedly marched into the foothills of the Pyrenees Mountains and then disappeared without a trace. Still, wartime. Let's go to World War I. During the Gallipoli? 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 Doesn't matter. During a campaign, the British 1st, 5th Norfolk Regiment. Hold on. How could they be the first fifth? Is there a second fifth and a third fifth? And if so, why are they splitting up regiments like we're mixing flour? I don't understand, but apparently they're known as the 1st 5th Norfolk Regiment. It was under the um, charge, leadership, whatever, of Colonel Sir Horace Beauchamp. And they were pursuing the enemy through a forested territory. And then, whoops, straight up disappeared without a trace. Maybe. Now, the regiment was composed of 250 soldiers and 16 officers. It was reported by an eyewitness account by General Sir Ian Hamilton in a dispatch to Secretary at War Earl Kitchener. He said, look, I watched that these guys disappeared. I have no explanation for it. Then, on the 50th anniversary of these landings, former sapper, I don't know what a sapper is, but this guy's a former one of those, Frederick Reichhardt, who'd been in the uh, New Zealand engineers, he signed an official statement because he said he was there, not part of that battalion, not part of the first fifth, but he was also there. And he recalled the appearance of a strange cloud about 800 feet long, 220 feet high, into which the regiment marched and then vanished. Don't worry, that's not the last you're going to hear about strange fogs or clouds or mist on this episode. But first, I have to do the skeptic part of this story. Officially, records say that on August 12, 1915, the 1st 5th Battalion suffered heavy losses at Gallipoli, sure, when it became isolated during an attack, and it was just a myth that the men went, walked into a mist and vanished. But, Reverend Piermont, Pierpoint, Pierpoint, sorry, Reverend Pierpoint Edwards, who investigated the grounds where the men vanished, said that he found a mass grave. So not heavy losses, but just one mass grave. He wrote, The whole thing quite bears out the original theory that they did not get very far on, but got mopped up one by one, all except the ones who got into the farm. But, apparently this same guy, Edwards, privately confided that the men had all been shot in the head execution style. Then... There's an account reported by supposedly a survivor, Arthur Weber, 
who said that he actually heard his fellow soldiers being ruthlessly rounded up and slaughtered by the Ottoman enemy in a completely different location. So the official story he said is bullshit too. Then we got that New Zealand officer or soldier, Frederick Reichardt, who, along with some other veterans from New Zealand, talked about that cloud that descended on the area. The men walked into it. And he said that they saw similar clouds around the same area. Nothing, you know, it was just kind of weird. But when people looked into his story, they found that Reichardt had the wrong date and location in mind, but he was near another troop that went missing. So maybe it was that troop that got sucked up by this cloud and not the first fifths. And then, you know, like, why did other soldiers also see a troop go into a, you know, a full battalion, whatever, go into a mist and then disappear? And who the hell are those men? Why don't we have those men? It's, it's a big rabbit hole to go down to is what I'm saying. For this story, the more I looked into it, the less answers I got, the more questions I got. And I'm like, what the crap is going on here? All right, but before we get back to the fog that eats people, as I like to call it, Let's go to 1939, still in the army. This time, a Chinese army of nearly 3,000 troops disappeared overnight. They were stationed 16 miles south of Nanking and had orders to fight to the end. You know, like, you're not leaving. You're all going to fight until there's nobody left. Now, 113 men were detailed to guard a bridge, basically, so the enemy couldn't advance. Now, the other troops, the 2,900 and... 80, so I was told there wouldn't be math in this. They dug in at the front line. Colonel Li Fu Xian gave the troops their orders, returned to headquarters a couple of miles behind the front line. Now, the next morning, he goes back up to the front line, and there's nobody there. He said he called first, and the Army field phones, nothing. So he goes there. There ain't nobody there. The, de the detachment that was guarding the bridge, those 113 men, were still in position, and they said no enemy forces had passed across the bridge. But those 2,000, almost 3,000 plus men, whatever, that were in the front line were all gone. No one had seen these men ever again. They said it is very unlikely for a Chinese army to all desert their posts and never be seen again. So, yeah, big mystery. No idea. All right, let's move forward. To 1977, still doing army stuff. April 25th, 1977, about 4 a.m., Armando Valdez, who was a corporal in the Chilean army, he was in charge of a patrol on routine assignment near Putre in the early morning hours. Now, he and his six-man patrols, so not a huge one, they were sitting around a campfire alongside a wall of stones and mud at the secret army post of Pampa Lascuma. Sure, why not? I... Uh, I think it's Yeskuma. They were uh, talking and singing, you know, just trying to stay awake, basically. Now, two of the men were keeping watch several feet away. They would, you know, trade off. So these two guys that were keeping watch, Private Rosales, one of the guys, ran back to say, hey, there are two bright violet lights that had landed. 1977, so it could be helicopters, could be anything. One of which was in sight and illuminated the entire area completely silent. Okay, so not helicopters. Now, the light approached closer, so Valdez was like, all right, you guys all cover up your fires with blankets. Let's go, you know, zero dark kind of a thing. The violet light with a red spot on each end withdrew and then returned closer, then came back and then went closer, almost like it was searching for these men. Now, the men said that Valdez went off to, uh, went off alone, Valdez went off alone to investigate the lights and told his men, hey, stay there and keep watch. Now, he left for 15 minutes. They said he was gone for 15 minutes. When he reappeared, he tried to speak and then passed out for two hours. Here's the odd thing. The date on his watch had been advanced by five days. The time was wrong. He now had about a week's growth of beard. Huge grain of salt, but apparently he said when he woke up, you don't know who we are or where we come from, but we'll be back soon. Then he kind of like came out of it and said, what? I don't remember anything from the moment I left you. He said he ordered them, you know, get ready to leave because it's 430 in the morning. Problem was, it was actually 7 a.m. His calendar watch had stopped at 
or his calendar watch. I don't know why I wrote it like that. His watch stopped at 4.30, but the date was five days advanced. And the Chilean government actually looked into this incident and concluded they didn't know what the men saw or what happened to Valdez or where those lights even came from. All right, let's go back in time to 1914. Chilean Air Force pilot, First Lieutenant Alejandro Bello Silva. Bello Silva, sorry. Now, he was taking part in an examination exercise. Depending where you get your information, he was either an expert pilot or he was learning to be a pilot. The fact that he was taking part in an examination exercise leads me to believe he was learning to be a pilot. Now, witnesses say his plane took off and then went into a fog. They expected his plane to emerge seconds later, but when a minute or two had passed, they were like, oh, that ain't good. Now, despite an extensive search of the area, no sign of the plane or Silva was reported. They said it simply seemed like he drove, he rode, he flew, not rode, he flew into a fog and then vanished. But an update, I've got an update, kind of, it's not like from this year, but it's from November 28th, 2007. An expedition set out for the commune of San Antonio, Chile, when they found two metal fragments belonging to an aircraft in the Cuncumin Hills. Jaime Gonzalez Colville of the Chilean Academy of History says it's very unlikely that the remains of Lieutenant Bello should be found anywhere near Concumen. It doesn't make any sense, but they are hoping to find more fragments of the plane because it was, you know, definitely a plane that they found. And some people are linking it to him already, saying it's definitely from that same plane, that same model, early plane, 1914. And they think they found him. But he shouldn't be anywhere near that area. So did he just fly into a fog and get lost and crashed? Maybe, but it doesn't explain the area that they found him in. All right, this next one has no names at all, which means I hate it and distrust it. But here it is for shits and giggles. Wait, what's the paranormal version of shits and giggles? Here it is for spooks and tingles. Sure, let's do that. All right, yeah, spooks and tingles, here we go. 1959, a businessman checked out of a roadside hotel in Bahia Blanca, Argentina. He said he got into his car and took off on the long journey home. As soon as he got in the car, though, and started it, he said a strange, thick, white mist came out of nowhere and seemed to envelop his car. He couldn't see anything out of the car windows other than the fog, and he says he panicked. And he might have even passed out, he said, because of the panic. That's a real strong reaction to fog. Uh, he said the next thing he knew, though, he was standing in a field near a lonely road in the middle of nowhere. No car in sight. No idea how he got there. So he walks for a bit, and he says, I didn't even see the hotel or anything that looked remotely familiar. He sees a trucker coming down the road, so he flags down the trucker. He asked the driver if he could take him back to Bahia Blanca so that he could get his car. And the driver was like, what are you, crazy? Bahia Blanca is 600 miles away. They're currently in the town of Salta. Ah, so, you know, the businessman rightfully freaked out. Doesn't pass out again, though, he said. Um, he looks at his watch, uh, and he noticed that only minutes had passed. So the truck driver said, hey, I can't take you all the way to Bahia Blanca, but I'll drop you off at the local police station. So they get there. Truck driver leaves. The guy tells the police what happened. Of course, they don't believe him, because why would you? But... They call the police in Bahia Blanca, and the officers there confirm with the hotel, and the hotel says, oh, yeah, that businessman stayed here, and the guy from the hotel said, look, his car is still in the parking lot, and the engine is running. What the hell? How did this guy travel 600 miles in minutes? I mean, that's a cool trick. I would love that. Like, anytime anybody asks you, you know, what your super superpower is, the answer should be teleportation. It's the best superpower ever. You always say teleportation. Flying, fuck that. Okay, now I'm flying, but I still have to fly over. You know, people are going to look up at me and see me. Nah, it's teleportation. You can go anywhere, do anything you want, get all the money and all the crap that you ever would need through teleportation. So this guy seemingly figured out a way to teleport just by fainting in his car when a fog went in his when you know when his car went the fog went around his car however you want to word it 
This guy figured it out. Good on him. All right. Next one. This one has a ton of evidence and reports on it, so I really like it. And it's relatively new. February 7th, 2018. Probably not paranormal. Just going to say that at the beginning. But I don't know. This guy doesn't even know. All right. It's, it's about Toronto firefighter Danny Philippides, who just straight up vanished into thin air while on an annual work skiing trip. All right. So this guy is 49 years old, experienced firefighter, experienced skier, was making his way from Whiteface Mountain to Lake Placid, where the firefighters were staying. So he tells, like, you know, he shows up and he goes, oh, crap, I left my cell phone out in the car. I'm going to go grab it. And then nothing. They get worried after a couple hours and they go and search for him. And when they couldn't find him, they went to the local police and they started a serious search party. Here's the thing to remember. Obviously, he doesn't, we'll find out in a minute, but he doesn't know what happened to him. So, it doesn't appear, it should say that way, not obviously, because you wouldn't know this. It doesn't appear that he went out and went skiing. He said, oh, I left my cell phone on my car. I'm going to go grab it. I'll be right back. Boom, disappears. So they do a search party and a serious search party. Eventually, over 250 people participated in the search, including helicopters and drones, as well as specialist equipment, search dogs, everything you can think of. Six days, nothing. Can't find him. That's really weird. Then, six days later, his wife gets a call, or his wife's friend. It's kind of hard to figure out, but I think it's his wife. Gets a call from him, and she said he sounded hazy and disoriented. But she soon learned he was over 2,500 miles away in Sacramento, California. Now, obviously, if you do the math, it is very easy to travel 2,500 miles in six days. You can do that in like two days, really. So local police were alerted. They went and picked him up. And he said that his only solid memory was arriving in Sacramento in a truck that dropped him off. He, um, the, the truck drops him off. He gets a haircut at a barbershop. Why? I don't know. He only has one credit card, no ID. So he takes that credit card. He buys an iPhone, calls his wife, and that's the story. All kinds of weirdness. Now, doctors think he probably suffered a massive head injury, but they can't find any trucker that ever came forward to explain why they would take some guy with a massive head injury all the way to California for no reason. He said he'd never been out to California, so it's not like he you know, hit his head and was like, oh, I love Sacramento. I won't go there now. But it's apparently what happened. Um, no explanation to this day. They think he had to have suffered some kind of fugue state, amnesia, head injury kind of a thing. But how he did that, walking to his car, sure, it's it was snowing, but it wasn't like he was walking on you know a sheet of ice and then he hit his head and then just wandered off a fucking mountain in Lake Placid and ends up in Sacramento. He's since, you know, back at home with his wife, firefighting again. It's a bizarre story. That one's weird. Alrighty, similar to that of the uh, Lieutenant Silva one, though. Here's another experienced fighter pilot. This guy's experienced, though. Commander John Baldwin, experienced fighter pilot, says that he, or not that he doesn't say, people that witnessed it said that he flew into a strange cloud while patrolling the skies during the Korean War in March of 1952 and disappeared. An entire squadron would conduct an extensive search of the area, and they never found any sign of a crash, no distress signals, no emergency signals, no Commander John Baldwin or plane. He was flying an F-86 Sabre at the time of his disappearance. It's Sabre. I know it's Sabre. I was saying Sabre like in the office, because so don't, don't like put in the comments, you pronounce Sabre wrong. I did it on purpose. Uh, look, nothing is ever been recovered of him or his plane ever. All right. This next one is a very short one. I know I'm coming up in an hour, but this next one's a very short one. Zero evidence. Everything online just regurgitates the same story. So another one of those um, spooks and tingles kind of a story. August 1968. 11-year-old Graciela de, la, de Lourdes Semines was outside playing... Um, she's outside of her house. She's playing with some friends in the small town of Cordoba, Argentina, when 
she just disappeared. She would later, so she was found, later recall that a strange white cloud appeared out of nowhere, moved towards where she stood. She said no matter which way she walked out of it, she was like, okay, well, I know my house is 10 feet to the left. She'd walk 10 feet to her left, no home. But she even said that she started running and nothing. She said she realized she couldn't see her house anymore. She couldn't see anything at all except for the mist, obviously. But the next thing that she knew, she was in a strange and busy square. She was like, I don't recognize any of this. She said there was a lot of kids playing, but she didn't recognize any of those kids. So not knowing where she was, she went to the first house she saw. She came up, knocked on the door, explained that she was lost. Hey, I'm from Cordoba, Argentina. And they're like, what the crap? You're in Plaza España, a city that is 4,000 miles from her home. Cool story. Can't prove any of it. All right. Staying in Argentina, 1968. May 1968, that is. Dr. Gerardo Vidal, Gerardo, Gerardo Vidal was driving in the area of Chascomos, Argentina. I know I'm saying this shit wrong. I'm sorry. With his wife when a strange mist enveloped their car. Look, I got to be honest. When I'm doing these kind of notes for the episodes, I write enveloped their car. And I hate writing enveloped because I want to pronounce it envelope. And then I sound dumb. And then everybody goes, oh, yeah, there's a strange mist enveloped their car. Come on, Kurt. So I got it right, but it took me a minute. Like, I really had to focus. All right. So his, him and his wife, their doctor, they're in that uh, town in Argentina. They wake up. And, the, and they said, look, the car is now stationary. But it was now daytime and 48 hours later. Plus, the important part, they were no longer in Argentina, but on a quiet road in Mexico, some 4,000 miles from their original location. But I got to say, ending this one on a positive note, their car still had a full tank of gas. So free Mexican vacation and tank of gas, buddy. That wasn't where they wanted to go, though. They wanted to, you know, drive home. But still, that's kind of neat. That's kind of cool. All righty. Let's go to 1974. After arriving home in Essex from an evening with his wife's parents, John and Susan Day, along with their three children, realized that their trip home had taken over three hours longer than it should have. Which, Kurt here, if you've ever driven home from the in-laws party, the drive always seems to take forever. But they had no memory of why their journey had taken so long. They said the entire family then began to experience intense nightmares starting that night and difficult sleeping in general. So, John agrees to undergo hypnotic regression... And um, he says he recalls that around 30 minutes into the, the trip, he had driven into a bizarre mist that had arrived from out of nowhere. An intense light shone in the distance in the fog. Then light hit the car and lifted it from the ground, taking it and them onto a UFO. But on the UFO, there were Nordic-looking beings in tight-fitting attire, and they performed various tests and procedures on all of them. Which, I gotta say, was still a better time than the party with the in-laws, I guarantee. Alrighty, let's go on to a local legend time. This is I'll end with this one, actually, because we're getting to the end of this. So let's do local legend ending of this episode. This is about the roads around the base of Casa Grande Mountain in Arizona. They are subject, or said to be subject, to a strange black mist, so not a white mist, black mist... And get this, I don't know what dark legends are, but they say dark legends state that if this black mist is allowed to engulf you, oh, that's good. So I guess it has to ask for your consent to engulf you, which, you know, I appreciate. My advice is to say no thank you if it tries to engulf you. Um, but if it does, they said it will plague you with uneasy feelings. Look, get in line, Fog. I already have uneasy feelings. And it could also transport you away to another dimension or time altogether. How they know this? I have no idea. If it takes you to another dimension or time, who's coming back and saying, guess what happened, man? I was driving on the road. We were by Casa Grande Mountain. And the black mist came and asked, hey, I'm a black mist. Can I engulf your car? And I was like, I guess. And then it did it, and boom, I was in another dimension or time altogether. I hate legends because of that stuff. But that's not even the end of it. Many of these dark legends 
Sure, why not? Are said to have had their routes in the culture of the Hohokam. Hohokam? Sure. Native American tribes who once called that area their home until they disappeared without any explanation in the year 1100. Now, many of the ruins still exist in the area, and some say they don't even understand what these ruins are. According to the legends, the black mist of Casa Grande Mountain contains the ancient living essence of the desert and has a mind of its own and should be respected at all times. Of course it does. Why? Who knows? Who says this? No idea. You can't just make a statement like that and say it means anything. Oh, you know that fog, that black mist over there? That black fog is the living essence of the desert. It has a mind of its own, and you should respect it at all times, obviously. Who's saying this stuff? What are dark legends? How do I get to have a dark legend? Do I just make up a stupid story? And say, Here's my dark legend. This is the dark legend. No, no, Rum, I'm going to make it up. It's cool. I'll, I'll do it. It's fine. I'm, I'm making up a dark legend. Hold on. All right, this is the dark legend. Oh, my God. She does not want me to make a dark legend. She is against dark legends. Or she's telling you her own. Hey, Rum. I'm trying to do a dark legend over here. Give me, like, two more minutes and I'll be done, okay? All right, I love you. Good girl. I love you, too. All right, the dark legend of Burbank, California. Oh, my God. She's been quiet this whole fucking time. I hope you guys can hear her barking on this. I know this microphone stops that kind of stuff, but I hope you can hear it. Rum, sweetheart, it's okay. Come here, come here, come here, come here. Come here. Hop in my lap while I tell the dark legend. No, 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 come here. I'm trying to do a dark legend. Okay, I love you too, but I got to do a dark legend right now. This is the dark legend of Burbank, California. Out of nowhere, while you're doing a podcast, a black mist will appear in front of your house and then envelope your entire house. When it does, your normally quiet dog will start barking for no reason. Why? Well, there is a reason. I shouldn't say no reason. And the reason behind it is because... The dark mist doesn't want the legend to be out and is telling your dog things that only dogs can understand. And she's trying to stop the dark mist from taking me and ending this episode abruptly. There you go. That's the legend of Burbank dark mist. And rum is just in a mood all of a sudden. My girl. All right, you know, you know, once you get a dog freaking out about dark legends, you got to call this episode a quit. You, you got to quit the episode. So with that, once again, I'm your host, Kurt Saving, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. Snizdel Gross.